0: Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com give. You're listening to episode 229 of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about Ellen G. White, the prophetess of Seventh day Adventism. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. In December of 1844, a 17 year old girl named Ellen G. Harmon was at a prayer meeting when she received a vision. She saw a group of people ascending a high and narrow path. Some of the people fell off the path into darkness. But Jesus beckoned the people toward a glorious heavenly realm whose marvels Ellen was shown. This was her first vision, and she went on to receive more than 2,000 revelations. This led to her becoming the co-founder and prophetess of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, under her married name of Ellen G. White. So who was Ellen G. White? What did her visions disclose? And was she a genuine prophetess? Well, that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. Jimmy, this is a patron episode, isn't it?
1: Yeah, uh, one of our patrons, Elliot Gentleman, uh, donated in an amount where he could pick an episode topic, and we agreed on this one. And it's going to be a two-parter. Um, so Elliot should be getting his money's worth, and we hope you appreciate and uh, the information and enjoy the episodes. Yes. So what do we want to say to begin the episode? Well, because I try to make Mysterious World as open and accessible to everyone as I can, I don't generally do episodes evaluating other people's religious views. Mysterious World is not an apologetics program, so I tend to avoid devoting episodes to analyzing or critiquing other religions. In my day job at Catholic Answers, I both defend the Catholic understanding of the Christian faith, and I offer critiques of other understandings of the faith and of other religions. But Mysterious World is about mysteries, so unless there's a mystery connected with a religious subject, it's a topic for another venue. However, private visions and revelations are mysterious, so we do talk about them here and consider whether they may be genuine or not, but I try to keep that separate from apologetics. But By patron request, I have sometimes done episodes on leaders of other religions who have claimed divine revelations. In doing so, I've tried to be as charitable, neutral, and balanced as possible, and so that's what we'll be doing today.
0: And like you said, this will be a two-part
1: episode, so what will we be covering today and next week? Uh, This week, we'll be telling you the life story of Ellen White and giving you a sample of some of her visions. Next week, we'll go into analysis mode and evaluate whether they were genuine from the perspectives of faith and reason. So today, we're telling you the story. Next week, we'll be doing the analysis. Listeners will know you're Catholic. Does that mean you'll support Catholics
0: who claim to have visions or reject visions when non-Catholics report them?
1: No, uh, being Catholic is no guarantee of being right, and being non-Catholic is no guarantee of being wrong. God loves all his children, and he can give supernatural insights to anyone he chooses. As a result, I strive to consider each person's reported visions neutrally, strictly in terms of the evidence favoring or disfavoring them. If someone is a Catholic, that won't stop me from saying their visions are false. Uh, Listeners can go back and review episode 123 on Father Michel Rodrigue. Despite the fact he's a Catholic priest, I concluded his reported visions are false, and people should not listen to him. Similarly, if someone's a non-Catholic, I can conclude their visions are genuine. Listeners can go back and review episode 44 on John Hendricks, the Tennessee prophet. Uh, Despite the fact he was non-Catholic, I concluded there's good evidence that his visions were genuine. So, the fact Ellen White was non-Catholic does not decide the matter for me. This will be based on the objective evidence concerning what she reported and not simply my theological views.
0: All right, then let's introduce
1: the woman at the heart of today's mystery. Who was Ellen G. White? She was born in 1827 in Gorham, Maine, and her maiden name was Ellen Gould Harmon. She had six older siblings, and she and her fraternal twin sister Elizabeth made eight children in the family. So she had a fraternal twin, which is cool. Like many people at the time, she didn't receive a lot of education, and her formal education ended when she was only nine years old, Though This happened for a very unusual reason. According to the Ellen G. White Encyclopedia published by the Ellen G. White Estate, Probably in the late fall of
0: 1836, Ellen's life took a traumatic turn. Ellen, her twin sister Lizzie, and a classmate had a hostile encounter with an older girl from their school. Their parents had taught them that in case of such a conflict, they should stop arguing and hurry home. They tried to follow that advice and get home as fast as possible, but the angry girl hurled a rock at the retreating young girls. Just as Ellen looked back to see how close their pursuer was, the rock hit Ellen full in the face. She was immediately knocked senseless. After regaining consciousness, she found herself in the store of a merchant. Her clothes were covered with blood, which was pouring from her nose and streaming over the floor. A stranger offered to take her to her parents' home in his carriage, but she declined his offer and set out to walk home. After walking a short distance, however, she grew faint and dizzy and had to be carried home by Lizzie and their schoolmate. Ellen had no recollection of anything that happened afterward. She lay in a delirium for three weeks. No one but her mother thought that she would survive. When Ellen became aware of her surroundings, she thought she had been asleep. She could not remember the accident or the cause of her condition. At one point, she overheard conversations between her mother and visiting friends. Ellen's curiosity was aroused by such remarks as, What a pity, I should not know her. When she asked for a mirror, she was shocked at her appearance, for every feature of her face seemed changed. Her nose was totally smashed, and she was reduced almost to a skeleton. She recounted later that the sight of her own face was more than she could bear, and the idea of carrying my misfortune through life was insufferable. Finding no happiness in her existence, she did not want to live, but dared not die unprepared.
1: Ellen eventually recovered from this injury, and the swelling that had distorted her face and made her unrecognizable went away, but her convalescence interrupted her schooling, and once she got better, she tried going back to school, but for various reasons it didn't work out, and so she ceased going to school at age nine. Her sister Elizabeth, however, continued to go. And what did Ellen do instead? Her health was poor and she spent a good bit of time bedridden uh, as an invalid. However, for a time, she tried to help with her father's business. He was a hat maker and she would do some of the hat making work from bed, at least for a time. But this period did not last long. Ellen is known for being a prophetess.
0: What kind of religious upbringing did she have?
1: For a time, her family were Methodists. In fact, during her early teens, Ellen was affiliated with what were known as the Shouting Methodists. These were a particularly enthusiastic group of people. As Stephen Daly explains in his book, Ellen G. White, A Psychobiography,
0: The Shouting Methodists were known for their extreme enthusiasm, which included visionary trances, fainting, swooning, jumping, screaming, shouting, crawling on hands and knees, making animal noises, as well as holy hugs and holy kisses. In addition to this, the movement was famous for chaotic, disorderly services where rings or circles of believers would gather and shout, sing, or scream in competition with a minister who was trying to preach over the commotion.
1: And enthusiastic manifestations of spiritual phenomena were par for the course in some circles during this period. Ellen was born during a time in American history known as the Second Great Awakening. Uh, Great Awakenings are periods in which there are widespread religious revivals in America. The First Great Awakening occurred between 1730 and 1755, during the colonial period, and the Second Great Awakening occurred just after America won its independence from our British overlords, between 1790 and 1840. So religious revival was in the air when Ellen was growing up. And what were the revivals of the day like? It varied from one location to another, and they were not all the same. Many revivals were held in churches, but a popular practice during the day was what were known as camp meetings. A camp meeting was when people would get together at camps out in the woods for a religious revival service, often with itinerant preachers, meaning traveling preachers, because they were often held on the frontier and many locations did not have a local preacher. People would get together at the campsite, listen to the preaching, pray, and sing hymns, And sometimes people would get really excited and rambunctious, leading to some interesting reports of spiritual manifestations. One of my favorite practices was based on the hunting culture of the day. Back in the 1800s, a lot of men and boys went hunting to get food, and they would take dogs with them for assistance. You know, Dogs have been helping humans hunt for 30,000 years, and our species work really well together. Well, back in the 1800s in America, if you were hunting a raccoon, the dogs would chase the coon for you, but coons can climb, so you'd end up with a situation where the coon is up in a tree, and since dogs can't climb, uh, they would gather around the base of the tree, barking to keep the coon scared and to alert the human hunters where to come. This led to a practice at camp meetings where, as a sign of Christ's power over the devil, men were reported to be overcome by the Holy Spirit, or at least by religious feeling and they would drop to their knees and crawl on all fours, barking like dogs, and they would howl up trees like dogs treeing a coon. This practice was known as treeing the devil. In any event, that's what was reported in some cases, and so, you know, that's... How cool is that? Treeing the devil. But getting back to Ellen's family, in 1840, at the tail end of the Second Great Awakening, Ellen's family became associated with the Millerite movement.
0: Most listeners won't be familiar with the Millerites. Who were they and
1: what did they believe? The Millerites were a loose theological movement inspired by the preaching of a man named William Miller. He was a Baptist lay preacher from New York, and beginning in 1831, he began preaching that the second coming of Jesus was imminent. Miller thought that he could calculate the time of Jesus' return based on a prophecy in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 8, the prophet sees a vision of a ram with two horns who is attacked by a goat that has one prominent horn between his eyes. The goat wins, and afterwards the one large horn is broken and four smaller horns come up in its place. From one of these other horns, a little horn emerges. Since the King James Version would have been the version that William Miller and Ellen were reading, here's what the King James Version says about the little horn. And out of
0: one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land.
1: The pleasant land is a reference to Judea, so the little horn will threaten Judea. And it waxed
0: great even to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and of the stars to the ground, and stamped upon them. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And an host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, and it cast down the truth to the ground, and it
1: practiced and prospered. This is a key point. The little horn will arrogantly come into conflict with the prince of the heavenly host, which is to say, with God. The little horn will cause the daily sacrifice to God to stop, and it will cause the place of God's sanctuary or temple to be cast down. Now, here comes the key part where, which William Miller believed allowed him to calculate the return of Christ.
0: Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto that certain saint which spake, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice, and the transgression of desolation, to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden under foot? And he said unto me, Unto two thousand and three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary
1: be cleansed. So Daniel hears one saint, meaning an angel, speaking to another and asking how long the vision concerning the stopping of the daily sacrifice and the desolation of the sanctuary will last. The other angel then responds in the King James Version that it will last for 2,300 days and then the sanctuary shall be cleansed.
0: Before we get to how William Miller interpreted this passage, how do most biblical scholars
1: interpret it? The interpretation of the passage is made easier by the fact that in the second half of Daniel 8, the angel Gabriel shows up and explains the vision to Daniel. Gabriel says that the ram with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia, so that's the Medo-Persian Empire. He also says that the goat with the one horn is the king of Greece, and the one horn is its first king. But at the height of its power, the one horn is suddenly broken and four other horns take its place. This tells scholars exactly what the prophecy is talking about. The one horn is Alexander the Great. At age 20, he became the ruler of the Greek kingdom of Macedon, and using an army, he became the first and greatest king of the Greek empire. In a 10-year period, Alexander used his Greek army to conquer a whole bunch of kingdoms including the Medo-Persian one, or the ram, in Daniel's vision. Alexander got as far as conquering part of India, but then at the height of his power, Alexander suddenly died in 323 BC. And afterwards, his four generals decided that, rather than fight each other for control, they would carve up Alexander's empire into four pieces. The four generals are the four horns that came up after the one horn was broken, and they each became king over a large swath of territory.
0: Okay, and that brings us to the little horn. So what do scholars make of that?
1: In this vision, horns represent kings, and the fact that the little horn comes from one of the four horns means that it's a king who comes from one of the four kingdoms that emerged after Alexander the Great's empire fell apart. We're also told that the little horn king will stop the daily sacrifice offered to God and will desolate his sanctuary, which would be the temple in Jerusalem. And it so happens there was a king who did this. His name was Antiochus IV. He's also known as Antiochus Epiphanes. And he was the king of the Seleucid Empire between 175 and 164 BC. Antiochus became involved in Jewish affairs and persecuted. The Jewish people, thus bringing himself into conflict with God or the Prince of the Heavenly Host. And you can read about that conflict in the books of 1st and 2nd Maccabees. Antiochus forbade the practice of the Jewish religion and tried to use force to make Jews embrace the Greek religion. He caused the daily sacrifices to be stopped at the Jerusalem temple, and he desecrated the temple itself by setting up an idol of Zeus and offering sacrifices to it.
0: What about the prophecy that the daily sacrifices would be stopped and the temple would be desolate for 2,300
1: days? How do scholars interpret that? There's not a single unified opinion and different views have been proposed. However, there is a majority opinion among scholars today, and this view rests on a literal reading of the Hebrew text. The King James does not translate the key verse in Daniel literally the hebrew does not say that the prophecy will last for 2300 days instead what it says would be better translated as that it will last for 2300 evenings and mornings meaning 2300 evening sacrifices and morning sacrifices this refers to the fact that there was both an evening sacrifice and a morning sacrifice to god at the jerusalem temple if 2,300 such sacrifices would be stopped, that would mean the period would last for 1,150 days, or a little over three years. And that corresponds to what Antiochus actually did, which was to stop the sacrifices from 167 BC to 164 BC, again, a period of just a little over three years. At the end of that period, Judah Maccabee and his companions set up a new altar and restored the daily sacrifices to God. And that's what the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah is all about. And so, in accordance with the prophecy, the sanctuary was cleansed. The scholarly consensus is thus that Daniel is a prophecy about Alexander the Great conquering, and of his successor Antiochus IV interfering with the Jewish religion, stopping the sacrifice and desecrating the temple with pagan sacrifices, only for it to be cleansed and for the sacrifices to be restored three years later. How did William Miller interpret the passage? Very differently. Uh, Miller interpreted the cleansing of the sanctuary in a completely different way. Instead of interpreting it as a cleansing of the Jerusalem temple, the way an ancient Jew would have understood it, he interpreted it as the cleansing of the entire earth by the coming of Christ. He then took the 2300- Days spoken of in the King James Version as a period of 2300 years. So he concluded that the second coming of Christ would occur 2300 years after another event. Since he didn't recognize that the prophecy was speaking about Antiochus Epiphanes in the events of the 160s BC, he started looking about for another starting date, and he ended up settling on the year 457 BC, three centuries earlier. And why did he settle on that year? He believed that in this year, King Artaxerxes of the Achaemenid Empire issued a decree ordering the rebuilding of Jerusalem. There are problems with this view, but that's when Miller believed this happened, and he believed that this was the correct starting point for the 2300-day prophecy. So, taking 457 BC and adding 2300 years to it, that would land us around the year 1843. Miller thus concluded that Christ would return in the year 1843, and he started a very popular movement in America that was known after him as the Millerites. Ellen Gould Harmon's family were among them, and as a result of their involvement with the Millerites and their disruptive attempts to get other Methodists involved in the movement, the Harmon family was disfellowshipped from their Methodist church except for Ellen's twin sister Elizabeth, who remained a Methodist all of her life. In 1840, Ellen heard William Miller himself preach and she became concerned for her salvation. However, in 1842, she was baptized and experienced a very happy time in life and began to wait for Jesus' return or advent, as it was called. What happened after when the year 1843 arrived? Miller had done some additional calculations and concluded that Jesus would return by March 21st, 1844. Because the Jewish year does not line up exactly with the Gregorian year. But March 21st passed without Jesus returning. Miller then thought that maybe the calendar used by rabbinic Judaism wasn't the correct one, and perhaps the calendar used by another group of Jews known as the Karaites is the one that they should employ. So he revised his date with Jesus coming back by April 18th, less than a month later. But April 18th also passed without Jesus returning. Then another Adventist leader advanced the theory that Christ would return on the 10th day of the 7th month on the Karaite calendar, which pointed to October 22nd, 1844, later in the same year. And this view became extremely popular. Many Millerites made preparations for Jesus' return and some sold their possessions. It's estimated that 100,000 people Had become believers in Miller's message, and on the appointed date, many stayed up past midnight waiting for Jesus to return. But Jesus did not return on October 22nd. Afterwards, a Millerite named Hiram Edson wrote Our fondest hopes and expectations were blasted, and such a
0: spirit of weeping came over us as I never experienced before. It seemed that the loss of all earthly friends could have been no comparison. We wept and wept till the day dawn. Another Millerite named Henry Emmons wrote, I waited all Tuesday and dear Jesus did not come. I waited all the forenoon of Wednesday and was well in body as I ever was. But after 12 o'clock, I began to feel faint. And before dark, I needed someone to help me up to my chamber as my natural strength was leaving me very fast. And I lay prostrate for two
1: days without any pain, sick with disappointment. Emmons wasn't the only person suffering with disappointment. The fact that Jesus didn't return on any of these dates came to be known in Millerite circles as the Great Disappointment, and non-Millerites heaped scorn on those who had been expecting him to return. In November of 1844, William Miller himself wrote a letter in which he described some of these experiences, saying, Some are tauntingly inquiring,
0: have you not gone up? Even little children in the streets are shouting continually to pass her by. Have you a ticket to go up? The public prints of the most fashionable and popular kind are caricaturing in the most shameful manner of the white robes of the saints, the going up, and the great day of burning. Even the pulpits are desecrated by the repetition of scandalous and false reports concerning the ascension robes. And priests are using their powers and pens to fill the catalog of scoffing in the most
1: scandalous periodicals of the day. So the Millerites were the subjects of public embarrassment and humiliation, and it was a dark time for them.
0: Before we continue to talk about Ellen White, let's take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Stephen E., William C., Jeremy S., Joanne M., and Christine G. Their generous donations at sqpn.com give, make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com give. Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fear Vento Law PLLC. Now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com. F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O-Law.com. And by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at delivercontacts.com. So Jimmy, what happened to the Millerite movement after they realized that Jesus had not returned?
1: Many gave up their distinctively Millerite beliefs. Uh, Some returned to the denominations that they had been part of, while others joined different sects. There were newspaper reports that some Millerites were so disappointed that they committed suicide, and others were so disturbed that they became mentally ill and were confined to mental asylums. The remaining Millerites split into two groups. The first group, with which William Miller himself affiliated, acknowledged that the calculation of the date of Jesus' return was mistaken. Jesus' return or advent was still believed to be very close, but this group gave up predicting new dates for it. And what about the other group of Millerites? They still believed that the October 22nd, 1844 date was correct, but they interpreted it as referring to something other than the end of the world, or the second coming. They based this view on Jesus' parable of the wise and foolish virgins in Matthew 25. In the parable, there are two groups of virgins who are waiting for a bridegroom who represents Jesus to arrive, and the foolish virgins haven't brought enough oil for their lamps, so when the bridegroom arrives, they aren't ready for him and the door uh, to the wedding feast gets shut in their faces. Advocates of this school hold that this event happened on October 22nd, so that the heavenly door of salvation was now shut. And if you weren't saved by eight by october twenty second eighteen forty four you would go to hell, or at least that was true of many people. It was also envisioned that there would be some exceptions and between eighteen forty four and eighteen fifty two there was a debate about who might be an exception, and they gradually got softer and looser and saw more and more exceptions, in part because people were still converting. However, because of their belief that the heavenly Door was shut, they became known as the shut door Adventists. They also became known as the bridegroom Adventists, again because of the bridegroom in the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, and later they became known as Sabbatarian Adventists because they came to believe that Christians should celebrate the Jewish Sabbath, you know, which is the seventh day of the week, instead of keeping Sunday as a Christian holy day. But that happened later, and because the idea of the Seventh-day Sabbath hadn't yet become popular or hadn't really spread among them yet. At this time, they were just known as the Shut-Door Adventists. And which group did Ellen affiliate with? It was the Shut-Door or Bridegroom Adventists. The Ellen G. White Encyclopedia, published by the Ellen G. White Estate, says, Bridegroom Adventism divided over whether the Second
0: Coming, Resurrection, New Jerusalem, Heaven, etc., were literal or spiritual events and places. The majority eventually adopted the spiritualizing view. By the first half of 1846, the spiritualizers had drifted off to another sect known as shakerism, or abandoned the bridegroom view. The little flock that became Sabbatarian Adventists, while believing in the shut door, utterly rejected the spiritualizing approach and held to a literal view. Ellen White was at the forefront in opposing the bridegroom spiritualizers.
1: So Ellen accepted the shut-door theology and opposed those who interpreted the return of the bridegroom or the second coming in a spiritual rather than literal way. And her views on exactly what the shut-door meant and how many exceptions there were to it evolved between 1844 and 1852, along with other members of the movement. This period saw enough growth in people converting to Adventism that. By 1852, they concluded that there were more exceptions than not to the shut-door doctrine, and that it was really only those who had culpably rejected Adventist preaching before the Great Disappointment of 1844 that were permanently lost. Other people could still be saved and were still being saved.
0: The shut-door Adventists had the parable of the wise and foolish virgins as a basis for the shut door belief. But how do they relate that to October 1844 in their previous calculations based on the cleansing of God's sanctuary in the prophecies of Daniel? Why did they still think October 22nd, 1844 was significant?
1: This was also an idea that developed over time, but the seed of it was planted as early as October 23rd, the very next day. On that day, a Millerite named Hiram Edson was at a prayer service, and he became convinced that Light would be given, and everyone's disappointment would be explained. Afterwards, he was walking in a field and saw a vision of Jesus in heaven. In the vision, Jesus emerged from the sanctuary of God's heavenly temple, having cleansed it, and went into the inner chamber, or what would typically be called the Holy of Holies. From this, the idea developed that on October twenty-second, 1844, Jesus finished cleansing the outer sanctuary, in heaven. He was now ministering in the inner sanctuary, and he would not return to earth until that was completed. So on this view, the sanctuary that was cleansed was not the earth, but the outer sanctuary of God's temple in heaven. This work was completed on October 22nd, 1844, and we don't know when Christ's current work will be finished, so we don't know when the second coming will occur. This became the position of the modern Seventh-day Adventist church. So Ellen is known as a prophetess. When did she receive her first heavenly vision? In December of 1844, just two months after the Great Disappointment, she was at a prayer meeting. At the time, she was 17 years old, and it was then that she received her first vision. In her account of it, she refers to Millerites, the people who were awaiting the advent of Jesus at the time, as the Advent people. She writes,
2: While I was praying at the family altar, the Holy Ghost fell upon me, and I seemed to be rising higher and higher, far above the dark world. I turned to look for the Advent people in the world, but could not find them, when a voice said to me,
0: Look again, and look a little higher.
2: At this I raised my eyes, and saw a straight and narrow path, cast up high above the world. On this path the Advent people were traveling to the city, which was at the further end of the path. They had a bright light set up behind them at the beginning of the path, which an angel told me was the midnight cry.
1: The midnight cry is a reference to Jesus' parable of the wise and foolish virgins. In the parable, it refers to someone calling out at midnight and saying that the bridegroom is coming and the virgin should come out and meet him. In Millerite circles, it referred to the warning that Christ was coming soon and people needed to get ready. So in her vision, Ellen saw this message, lighting people's way from behind as they made their way along the narrow path towards the heavenly city.
2: This light shone all along the path and gave light for their feet so that they might not stumble. If they kept their eyes fixed on Jesus, who was just before them, leading them to the city, they were safe. But soon some grew weary and said the city was a great way off and they expected to have entered it before. Then Jesus would encourage them by raising his glorious right arm, and from his arm came a light which waved over the Advent band, and they shouted Alleluia. Others rashly denied the light behind them and said that it was not God who had led them out so far. The light behind them went out, leaving their feet in perfect darkness, and they stumbled and lost sight of the mark and of Jesus, and fell off the path down into the dark and wicked world below. So
1: not all of the Millerites or Advent people were making it to heaven because some lost faith and fell back into the world.
2: Soon we heard the voice of God like many waters, which gave us the day and hour of Jesus's coming. The living saints, a 144,000 in number, knew and understood the voice, while the wicked thought it was thunder and an earthquake. When God spoke the time, he poured upon us the Holy Ghost, and our faces began to light up and shine with the glory of God, as Moses's did when he came down from Mount Sinai. The 144,000 were all sealed and perfectly united. On their foreheads was written, God, New Jerusalem, and a glorious star containing Jesus' new name.
1: The 144,000 are a group that's mentioned in the book of Revelation. Among mainstream Bible scholars, they're commonly understood to be a symbol of all of the saved, not a literal group of exactly 144,000 people. However, according to Ellen, they apparently refer to a literal group of 144,000 especially holy people who will be alive at the time of the second coming and will not pass through death. Here in this vision, Ellen seems to indicate that the 144,000 were alive at the time and that she was one of them. Uh, that would put the second coming during her lifetime, but that would not be the case. And there were trials ahead for these people.
2: At our happy holy state, the wicked were enraged and would rush violently up to lay hands on us to thrust us into prison. When we would stretch forth the hand in the name of the Lord, and they would fall helpless to the ground. Then it was that the synagogue of Satan knew that God had loved us, who could wash one another's feet and salute the brethren with a holy kiss, and they worshipped at our feet. Soon our eyes were drawn to the east, for a small black cloud had appeared, about half as large as a man's hand, which we all knew was the sign of the Son of Man. We all, in solemn silence, gazed on the cloud as it drew nearer and became lighter glorious and still more glorious till it was a great white cloud the bottom appeared like fire a rainbow was over the cloud while around it were ten thousand angels singing a most lovely song and upon it sat the son of man his hair was white and curly and lay on his shoulders and upon his head were many crowns his feet had the appearance of fire and his right hand was a sharp sickle and his left a silver trumpet his eyes were as flame of fire which searched his children through and through. Then all faces gathered paleness, and those that God had rejected gathered blackness. Then we all cried out, Who shall be able to stand? Is my robe spotless? Then the angel ceased to sing, and there was some time of awful silence when Jesus spoke. Those who have clean hands and pure hearts shall be able to stand.
0: My grace is sufficient for you.
2: At this our faces lighted up, and joy filled every heart. And the angel struck a note higher and sang again, while the cloud drew still nearer the earth. Then Jesus' silver trumpet sounded as he descended on the cloud, wrapped in flames of fire. He gazed on the graves of the sleeping saints, then raised his eyes and hands to heaven and cried, Awake! 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 Ye that sleep in the dust and arise! Then there was a mighty earthquake. The graves opened and the dead came up clothed with immortality. The 144,000 shouted Alleluia as they recognized their friends who had been torn away from them by death and in the same moment we were changed and caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air.
1: Ellen then describes their ascent back to heaven as well as the wonders of heaven and how awesome it is. One of the things she sees is the banquet Jesus has set for the saints in heaven.
2: I saw a table of pure silver. It was many miles in length, yet our eyes could extend over it. I saw the fruit of the tree of life, the manna, almonds, figs, pomegranates, grapes, and many other kinds of fruit. I asked Jesus to let me eat of the fruit. He said,
0: Not now. Those who eat of the fruit of this land go back to earth no more. But in a little while, if faithful, you shall both eat of the fruit of the tree of life and drink of the water of the fountain. And he said, You must go back to the earth again and relate to others what I have revealed to you.
2: Then an angel bore me gently down to this dark world. Sometimes I think I can stay here no longer. All things of earth look so dreary. I feel very lonely here, for I have seen a better land. Oh, that I had wings like a dove, then would I fly away and be at rest.
1: And that was Ellen's first vision. Essentially, it was a message of encouragement for the Millerites to keep their faith, despite the great disappointment. And eventually they would be taken to heaven, though they would have trials to pass through first, including the opposition and mocking that non-Millerites were subjecting them to. How many revelations did Ellen have altogether? Reportedly, she had around 2,000 revelations, many of which came in the form of, of dreams. Needless to say, we won't be going through each of her visions. We will be discussing some of them in the Reason Perspective section next week, but just for the moment, I'd like to look at one particular vision she received in her career just because it's cool. She got to see other planets. Ellen wrote,
2: The Lord has given me a view of other worlds. Wings were given me, and an angel attended me from the city to a place that was bright and glorious. The grass of the place was living green, and the birds there warbled a sweet song. The inhabitants of the place were of all sizes. They were noble, majestic, and lovely. They bore the express image of Jesus, and their countenances beamed with holy joy, expressive of the freedom and happiness of the place. I asked one of them why they were so much more lovely than those on the earth. The reply was,
0: We have lived in strict obedience to the commandments of God, and have not fallen by disobedience like those on the earth. Then
2: I saw two trees, one looked much like the tree of life in the heavenly city. The fruit of both looked beautiful, but of one they could not eat. They had power to eat of both, but were forbidden to eat of one. Then my attending angel said to me,
0: None in this place have tasted of the forbidden tree, but if they should eat, they would fall.
1: So in her vision, Ellen apparently got to visit an unfallen world, kind of like Paralandra or Venus in C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy. The unfallen world that Ellen saw was one where God gave the inhabitants the same two-tree test that he gave Adam and Eve, with one of the trees conferring life and the other being forbidden fruit. Only the inhabitants of this world passed the test, and none ate the forbidden fruit, so they remained unfallen. And how cool is that? Uh, she also got to meet a famous biblical figure on another planet.
2: Then I was taken to a world which had seven moons. There I saw good old Enoch, who had been translated. On his right arm he bore a glorious palm, and on each leaf was written victory. Around his head was a dazzling white wreath, and leaves on the wreath. And in the middle of each leaf was written purity. And around the wreath were stones of various colors that shone brighter than the stars and cast a reflection upon the letters and magnified them. On the back part of his head was a bow. that confined the wreath, and upon the bow was written Holiness. Above the wreath was a lovely crown that shone brighter than the sun. I asked him if this was the place he was taken to from the earth. He said,
0: It is not. The heavenly city is my home, and I have come to visit this
2: place. He moved about the place as if perfectly at home. I begged of my attending angel to let me remain in that place. I could not bear the thought of coming back to this dark world again. Then the angel said,
0: You must go back, and if you are faithful, you, with the 144,000, shall have the privilege of visiting all the worlds and viewing the handiwork
1: of God. So she got to meet the biblical patriarch Enoch, who Genesis says was taken to heaven. He said he normally lives in the heavenly city, New Jerusalem, but he was visiting this other planet. And Regardless of what religion you are, we can all hope that once we make it to heaven, we'll also be able to go visit other planets in the eternal order, because that would be super cool.
0: (laughs) Yes, it would. So did Ellen
1: say where these other worlds that she saw were located? There's a dispute about that. According to a statement on the website of the Ellen G. White Estate, Joseph
0: Bates, a retired sea captain with a special interest in astronomy, was present during at least one of these visions and he is reported to have identified the planets Jupiter, Saturn, and Uranus as being among those described. Some have mistakenly linked Elder Bates's remarks to Ellen White's description of a place inhabited by noble and majestic beings. In Ellen White's own account of her vision, however, she says only that she was taken to a place that was bright and glorious. She does not identify the place as Jupiter, Saturn, or any other planet in our solar system.
1: Together with Ellen and her husband, the former sea captain Joseph Bates was one of the co founders of the Seventh day Adventist church. So he was on friendly terms with Ellen and should be considered a reliable witness of what she said. However, in her own writings, Ellen does not identify these planets as being of our solar system. It was Bates who identified them as Jupiter, Saturn, and Uranus based on what was known by astronomy at the time. Still, it's really a cool vision. What happened to Ellen after she began receiving visions? Some people opposed her. For example, she writes that some people were accusing her of having received her visions while in a state of mesmerism or hypnosis, as we would call it today. In 1845, she met an Adventist minister named James Springer White. And in 1846, when she was 18 years old, the two were married. White himself was 25 years old at the time, and he believed that Ellen was genuinely getting revelations from God. So Ellen Gould Harmon became Ellen Gould White. Together, the couple had four sons, though two of them did not survive to adulthood due to illnesses, which was very sad for them. However, the other two sons grew up to become Adventist ministers like their father.
0: How did the founding of the Seventh-day Adventist Church come about?
1: Ellen and her husband James were already Adventists, meaning that they were people who believed that Jesus' second coming or Advent was imminent. You know, they'd adopted the beliefs of the Millerites, and shortly after their marriage, they began keeping Saturday, the seventh day of the week, as the Sabbath. Seventh-day Sabbath observance was something that had been introduced in some Millerite circles even before the Great Disappointment due to the influence of a young Seventh-day Baptist woman Named Rachel Oakes Preston. After the great disappointment, it continued to grow in popularity, and Ellen and James adopted it. In 1848, Ellen had a vision in which God told her that James should start a newspaper, and the next year they began to publish a paper called The Present Truth, the first issue of which was devoted to the subject of the Sabbath. The paper did not last long as a solo publication, however and only 11 issues of it were printed between 1849 and 1850. But it merged with another Adventist paper and continues to be published today as the Adventist Review. Throughout the 1850s and 1860s, Ellen and James remained active in the movement, which at this time was an informal alliance rather than a formal organization. In 1860, they settled on the name Seventh-day Adventism after their two distinctive doctrines, Seventh-day worship, and the belief that the advent of Christ was imminent. And in 1863, they formed the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists, becoming a formal organization. The three co-founders were James White, Ellen White, and Joseph Bates. James was the president of the General Conference. In 1865, he suffered a paralyzing stroke but it didn't stop him from going on to serve three terms as president of the conference. Eventually, though, in 1880, he decided that he should retire from the ministry. The next year, 1881, he contracted a fever. He was treated by a young Dr. John Harvey Kellogg. And yes, Dr. John Harvey Kellogg is the cornflakes guy, he was the inventor of Kellogg's cornflakes. And he had been an Adventist for years and knew the Whites well, but he was not able to save James. And so James White passed on to his reward in 1881 at the age of 60, which was a respectable age to live to back then. What happened to Ellen after his passing? She wasn't an ordained minister in the Adventist church, but she continued to pursue her ministry as a prophetess and was very influential. In addition to receiving dreams and visions, she also wrote many books and articles, and it's estimated that these total 100,000 pages in length. These covered not only prophetic subjects, but also topics like devotional reading, Christian living, child raising, education, diet, health, and her own autobiography. She passed on to her reward in 1915 at the age of 87.
0: What do Seventh-day Adventists make of Ellen G. White's writings?
1: Well, there were and are different views. There were people who embraced all of them as divinely inspired. There were people who thought that some were inspired, but others were just her opinions. And some thought that all of them were just her opinions. However, for our purposes, the question isn't so much what other people thought, but what Ellen herself claimed regarding them. Some recipients of private revelation, like Sister Lucia of Fatima, who we discussed in Episodes 40, 64, and 65, only claimed that their visions themselves were revelation. Sister Lucia didn't claim that her later written accounts of the visions were divinely inspired, nor did she claim that writings she did on other subjects were inspired. But Ellen claimed to have received a greater prophetic gift than Sister Lucia. While she didn't place her writings on the same level of importance as the Bible, she did regard them as divinely inspired. It appears that Ellen did not conceptually distinguish between public revelation and private revelation, and that she did not clearly distinguish between revelation and inspiration. According to the Ellen White Estate's Ellen G. White Encyclopedia, Ellen White did not
0: sharply distinguish between the concepts revelation and inspiration, as is customary today.
1: And that's understandable, since the terms revelation and inspiration are used differently in different religious communities, and they don't have a single universally agreed-upon definition. So what did she say about her own writings? She compared them to a lesser light that was meant to assist the greater light of sacred scripture, but she acknowledged both of them as divine light and the products of inspiration. The Ellen G. White Encyclopedia notes that she
2: wrote, I am just as dependent upon the spirit of the Lord in relating or writing a vision as in having the vision. It is impossible for me to call up things which have been shown me unless the Lord brings them before me at the time that he is pleased to have me relate or write them.
1: So she indicates that it isn't just during her visions that the Lord is assisting her. He's also inspiring her at the time she relates or writes about them. In her writings, She is dependent on the Holy Spirit, so they're divinely inspired. Though, like St. Paul and other biblical authors, she isn't simply taking dictation from God. Instead, she's subjectively choosing her own words, though she may use quotation marks to indicate things that were told to her by an angel. And this is just like in the Bible, where a prophet, you know, let's say Isaiah, says some things in his own words, which are divinely inspired, but then he may give a direct quotation from a heavenly source, saying something like, Thus saith the Lord. The Ellen G. White Encyclopedia notes that Ellen similarly stated,
2: Although I am as dependent upon the spirit of the Lord in writing, my views, as I am in receiving them, yet the words I employ in describing what I have seen are my own, unless they be those spoken to me by an angel, which I always enclose in marks of quotation.
1: But the upshot is that Ellen regarded her own writings as inspired, just like those of the biblical authors. The Ellen G. White Encyclopedia states, She did not
0: make a distinction between inspired and less inspired sections in the Bible or in her own writings. It also states, According to Ellen White, no one has the liberty to dissect her writings by claiming that God has given you ability to discern what is light from heaven and what is the expression of mere human
1: wisdom. This passage makes it sound like all of her writings are of a piece, that they are all divinely inspired, just like the writings in the Bible. Does that mean that Ellen thought everything she wrote was inspired and without error? This subject is a little tricky. Um, On the one hand, she does think that the writings she composed for public consumption are inspired even when she had not received a vision just like St. Paul didn't have a vision every time he wrote one of his letters. But I have found one passage where she acknowledges that some purely human things are found in what she writes, though she limits these matters to
2: those that are not connected with faith and morals. Ellen says, I am troubled in regard to Brother A, who for some years has been a worker in Southern California. He has made some strange statements and I am pained to see him denying the testimonies as a whole because of what seems to him an inconsistency, a statement made by me in regard to the number of rooms in the Paradise Valley Sanitarium. Brother A says that in a letter written to one of the brethren in Southern California, the statement was made by me that the sanitarium contained 40 rooms when there were really only 38. This Brother A gives to me is the reason why he has lost confidence in the testimonies. The information given concerning the number of rooms in the Paradise Valley Sanitarium was given, not as a revelation from the Lord, but simply as a human opinion. There has never been revealed to me the exact number of rooms in any of our sanitariums, and the knowledge I have obtained of such things I have gained by inquiring of those who are supposed to know. In my words, when speaking upon these common subjects, there is nothing to lead minds to believe that I received my knowledge in a vision from the Lord, and am stating it as such.
1: By sanitarium, Ellen means a healthcare facility. Today, the term is often used for mental healthcare facilities, ones that treat mental illness specifically. But in Ellen's day, sanitarium was a more general term that just referred to any healthcare facility. Brother A was apparently disturbed that when Ellen said that the Adventist Paradise Valley Sanitarium had 40 rooms, it really only had 38. I'm a little surprised that Ellen didn't simply reply by saying, well, 38 rounds up to 40. It's an approximate number, and the Bible uses approximate numbers all the time. But instead, she took another tack, uh, stating that this was a common subject, meaning one that isn't connected with faith or morals. So it wasn't a sacred matter, and thus not one subject to divine inspiration. But she was very clear that when she wrote on matters of faith and morals, it was not simply her opinion, but light. That came from God.
2: Some have taken the position that the warnings, cautions, and reproofs given by the Lord through me, his servant, unless they come through special vision for each individual case, should have no more weight than counsels and warnings from other sources. In some cases, it has been represented that in giving a testimony for churches or individuals, I have been influenced to write as I did by letters received from members of the church. There have been those who claim that testimonies purporting to be given by the Spirit of God were merely the expression of my own judgment based upon information gathered from human sources. This statement is utterly false. So,
1: when Ellen was giving warnings, cautions, and reproofs, she was writing for God. Even when she had not received a vision on a subject, she was divinely inspired. She also warned against trying to separate what was from God from what was merely her own opinion, saying,
2: Now, if those to whom these solemn warnings are addressed say it is only Sister White's individual opinion, I shall still follow my own judgment. And if they continue to do the very things they were warned not to do, they show that they despise the counsel of God. And the result is just what the Spirit of God has shown me it would be, injury to the cause of God and ruin to themselves. Some who wish to strengthen their own position will bring forward from the testimony statements which they think will support their views and will put the strongest possible construction upon them. But that which questions their course of action or which does not coincide with their views, they pronounce Sister White's opinion, denying its heavenly origin and placing it on a level with their own judgment. So, don't
1: try to distinguish between what God is saying and what Sister White is saying on subjects like faith and morals. It's all inspired. In fact, Ellen said that none of her public writings were just her own opinion.
2: When I went to Colorado, I was so burdened for you that in my weakness, I wrote many pages to be read at your camp meeting. You might say that this communication was only a letter. Yes, it was a letter, but prompted by the Spirit of God to bring before your minds things that had been shown me. In these letters which I write, in the testimonies I bear, I am presenting to you that which the Lord has presented to me. I do not write one article in the paper expressing merely my own ideas. They are what God has opened before me in vision the precious rays of light shining from the throne.
1: So everything Ellen writes for public consumption, at least on matters of faith and morals, is light from God and not her own ideas. She doesn't even write one article that expresses merely her own views. And she's very firm about the need
2: to adhere to what she says. God is either teaching his church, reproving their wrongs and strengthening their faith, or he is not. This work is of God, or it is not. God does nothing in partnership with Satan. My work for the past 30 years bears the stamp of God or the stamp of the enemy. There is no halfway work in this matter. The testimonies are of the spirit of God or of the devil. In arraying yourself against the servants of God, you are doing a work either for God or for the devil.
1: So Ellen draws a sharp line in the sand and says there's no halfway position here that you either need to regard her work as of God or as the work of the devil.
0: And that brings us to the conclusion of the first part of our discussion of Ellen White. Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listeners as they wait for next week?
1: We'll have links to the Ellen G. White Encyclopedia and also Stephen Daly's book, Ellen G. White, A Psychobiography. Also Ellen White's book, Early Writings, Um, a link to the uh, uh, Catholic uh, Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith's Norms on Judging Private Apparitions, which we're going to be using some next week. Also, the official Ellen G. White biography from the White estate, uh, information about, um, from the White estate about her vision on other planets, as well as uh, general information from Wikipedia about Ellen White. Also, prophecy in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, the inspired nature of Ellen G. White's writings, uh, her great controversy theme, where she sees history as a great controversy between Christ and Satan. Also, information on Seventh-day Adventism, her first vision, and an Adventist review of Stephen Daly's psychobiography.
0: Excellent. Well, that does it from us this time. We would love to hear your theories about Ellen G. White in her revelations. You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, sending a tweet to at mys or in the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com discord, or call our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515.
1: And I want to say a special word of thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work on this episode. They do really great work, and you can check it out by going to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Jimmy where we have video versions of Mysterious World as well as other videos that I do. I am trying to grow my channel, and we just passed 30,000 subscribers recently, so we're now working on 50, and I'd appreciate it if you would join us. So please uh, click the uh, subscribe button and also hit the bell notification so that YouTube will actually tell you when one of the videos you've requested to be told about is available. I also want to thank Dom's wife, Melanie, for the voiceover work today, playing the part of Ellen White. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week, we're going to go into analysis mode and see what the perspectives of faith and reason have to say about the prophecies of Ellen White.
0: Folks, be sure to check out the Mysterious World bookstore at MysteriousWorldStore.com for links to all the books and videos that Jimmy mentions in the show. You'll find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at mysterious.fm 229. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit... SQPN.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's mysterious world is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at AaronV.com. A A R O N V.com. Making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the Catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bethanelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, American Catholic History. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash history.